Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Corey Johnson, Managing Partner at Bold Insight, about ensuring that medical device research is safe for patients. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Corey Johnson, Managing Partner, specializing in medical device research at Bold Insight. Welcome, Corey. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great to have you. Um, before we talk a little bit about medical devices, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and Bold Insight. Absolutely. Um, my background is in human factors psychology, and for the better part of the past uh, 20 years or so, I have been consulting with medical device and combination product manufacturers in the application of human factors and usability engineering to the development of medical devices and combination products. Um, so Bold Insight is the consulting firm that I founded about five years ago with a number of other partners, um, and we have we have grown our our practice to uh, over 100 researchers, mostly based out of the Chicago area, also around the country, um, and about 70% of the research, the work that we do for our clients is in the healthcare and medical device space, uh, the other 30% being in the consumer technology space. Excellent. Well, let's talk about uh, what are some things to consider when ensuring that medical devices and therapies are safe and effective? Yeah, so it, when looking at the application of human factors and usability engineering specifically to the development of medical devices, um, there are three key things that uh, practitioners and, and developers need to, to define and understand. That is the intended users who are the intended users of the, the product, the device being developed, what is, what's their background in education, what's their prior experience, um, what are the variable different kinds of use cases or intended use that each of those uh, different types of experience folks might be uh, seeing with the device. So that's the first one. The second one is the, the actual intended uses. What are the users going to be doing with the medical device or combination product? And for that, it's kind of a deconstruction of all the, the tasks that, the, that a user may, may go through and do with the device. Requires a task analysis and detail to understand what, what all that entails. Um, and also then alignment of those uh, different intended uses to the user groups that you've already defined and understood. And finally, the third thing to take into account is the intended use environments. So aside from the who is using the device, what are they doing? What's the context in which they're doing it? Um, what are the facets of that environment that are going to have an impact on use? Sound levels, light levels, um, parallel tasks going on, wearing personal protective equipment, all these things have an impact on how uh, each of those users experiences use of the product or device. So it's important to take all that into consideration. So if you take like all of that above and then think about how the nature of those parameters whether it's related to, to the uses, the environments, or, or the, the, the users themselves, what, what impact is there on use-related risk? Um, what do all those, those, those specific parameters, what impact do they have on that use-related risk? And, and how important is it to do thorough medical device research? Well, well yeah, I'd say, I'd say very important. Very important, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I actually was, I listened to um, one of your recent uh, podcasts with uh, Stephanie Mercado of NACU, and I, I found kind of a nice uh, parallel or springboard there um, to talk about just, just this. Um, all of the things that, that she was talking about with 
designing, uh, you know, designing the workforce or reinforcing the workforce with through all the training and the, the quality initiatives, all of that, obviously, extremely important. Um, and I kind of view the uh, the medical device research that that we're speaking about as kind of the other side of that coin. So that's coming at, you know, kind of improving patient outcomes and patient safety from one angle. Very important. This is also important to to put forth the investment and the effort to support safe and effective use and the actual design of the medical devices and the products inside of a healthcare ecosystem is a very important piece of that. Everything from the device itself to its its labeling, its packaging and the workflows that go around it, all of that uh, is is our, our potential objectives that we might help our clients sort through and, and design those experiences to be improved. I mean, does that typically occur, uh, you know, uh, in these cases, are, are people doing enough research or should, should, you know, there be more kind of put in ahead of time? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I will say that I, I think in the past 10 years, we have certainly moved a lot in the right direction. Um, a lot of that driven by the the focus that the the FDA has placed on human factors and usability engineering for the past 10 years. There's kind of a, a major refocus or shift and to focus on that more. Um, and that's that's great. And it is having it is having positive uh, effects. But that uh, if, if the human factors and usability engineering effort is treated as a regulatory imperative and that that you do what is required from a regulatory perspective uh, only that can put manufacturers in a challenging position so the the requirement is that the uh, the human factors or usability process is, is documented and uh, for just to, to oversimplify that safe and effective use is validated through um, for example simulated use testing um basically showing that the intended users can use the device for its intended purposes in the intended use environment safely and effectively um so that's what we call that a, a validation study a simulated use validation study and uh that is kind of the requirement if you if you provide the fda with your usability engineering file what they're really looking for primarily is that that validation study that makes the conclusion yes the de device is safe and effective to use and that that kind of summary report as well as the use related risk analysis that goes along with it is are those are kind of the two of the main things that the FDA will look at now what uh, what some what some manufacturers can find themselves realizing if they do not have as mature of uh, a, an internal human factors and usability practice, is that there's there's a lot of ancillary things that that build up to that validation study and everything that goes with it that it's really more of an internalization of a user-centered design process throughout the entire uh, development of a device or product of any type so those who uh, who tend to have the most success with their validation studies are those who have embraced that that process from start to finish and they gather input from the end users of whatever the, the medical device or combination product is early and often throughout the development process. That way they understand what the use related challenges are. They're actively designing for those challenges uh, throughout the process and not just discovering what those challenges might be late in the game when they're about to submit for commercialization. 
Yeah, I mean, I imagine it depends on the product and, you know, the usage and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, how how long does that user testing usually take? So the, I'll, I'll kind of break that up into two, two answers. So one, the validation study itself, kind of that culmination, that effort um, usually takes, uh, as you pointed out, it can vary widely depending on the complexity of product. But um, anywhere from, let's call it eight to 16 weeks uh, from end to end, and that, that what that includes is um, putting the, the finishing touches on the plan for how to conduct the research, recruiting the research participants, setting up the simulated use environment, capturing the data, running all of the, the validation uh, study sessions, and then analysis and developing that kind of summary report on the back end. So that's kind of the, the final step, the culmination. But that, that broader process that I'm talking about, that could ex that, that extends years in some cases. Right. As, and, long as, and, as long as you're working on the product, basically. Exactly. Exactly. If if you're if you're developing the product, there's there's never really a bad time to uh, get input from the users and help inform the direction of the design. Um, but I think some of the the more uh, kind of the intermediary steps that that lead up to that that ultimate validation study have have kind of similar timelines. You know, you need you need a few weeks on the front end to kind of organize what your what what are your objectives? What are, what are the the use related challenges that you suspect are there, or where are your gaps in knowledge that you need to to understand better um, if there are any challenges, and and what sort of research methodology is going to be best suited to get at the specific types of answers that you're looking for, and then putting all the logistics in place to go out and capture that data in whatever way uh, is appropriate for the objectives at hand, and and then summarizing and documenting all that in that in that usability engineering file. So then you have a nice story when you get to the end and you're validating safe and effective use. It's not, hey, we we took a crack at uh, making this product and we we took a shot at validating it was safe and effective to use. And turns out it is. It's more of a progression. <laughs> we found these yeah. issues along the way. We designed it in this way in response. And this is where we landed. Because you might find things and have to go back to the drawing board and address, you know, it might be a major, major issue. And then basically test it all over again so you, you could you know it could really set you back but at uh, the same you know point you don't want to find out that, that out after you take it to the fda so that's right that's right and um just just as a a, a hypothetical example or kind of a representative example um I, I i use this to kind of put a put a finer point on the importance of, of doing this for for in cases where um you know, I need to kind of bring bring the, the the manufacturers along and make them see what the risk of not doing it is. Um, there, say there's a a, a a new formulation of a drug that's going to be administered through a, a a certain type of of tubing that requires uh, it requires a little bit of um, say reconstitution by the clinician who is administering it to then uh, push the 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 drug through the tubing after it's been reconstituted the um, the, the development engineers of, of the molecule, you know, they've tested it all out. They say that this should be no, really no different than um, what these clinicians are used to. These are normal processes. There's not really much that we should need to be concerned about. Um, we, you could ask the question, uh, you know, understood. Have you, have you, have you vetted that? Have you tested that out with, with the, the, the users, with some clinicians? 
um, we, we have been in similar scenarios like this before. And uh, in, in at least one case, we have found that once, once these clinicians were brought in to actually go through this process and they actually put rubber to road and, and it wasn't just theoretical that this should be able to happen, um, we've seen instances where clinicians find that for whatever reason, maybe it's um, some nature of, of a molecule, it doesn't reconstitute the same way that other things reconstitute, gets clogged in the tubes, and it's just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work the same way as everything else does. Um, so that if you, if you wait until too far down the road during your development process to uncover something like that, that can be spendy in terms of money and time. Yeah, I imagine, you know, you've got to have sort of the users, you know, the clinicians be able to find it easy to use but also you know if you're testing it out on you know patients uh you know that has to work that that way as well right i mean i'm sure there are things that that pop up on either end that can really uh set you back yeah absolutely um i, I think uh, the majority of our uh of our of our conversation has been focused on the you know intentionally or unintentionally more of the, the medical devices used in a clinical setting by clinicians uh but the, a big a big facet of what we do is is thinking about the implications of taking a, a device that is, was originally intended for clinical use and now it's going to be moved to home use now you've got non-professional staff you've got patients using it what types of design considerations need to be taken into account for that it's a it's a very important um, question to ask lots of tailoring of uh, labeling and instructional materials for a different audience and uh, provision of additional support, maybe companion applications that go along with certain devices to help the, the patients out with that as well. And I guess, you know, during during the pandemic, we saw a lot of, you know, uh, things getting sped through the process just because of the need for COVID tests and, you know, vaccines and things like that. Um, does that raise any concerns going forward in terms of manufacturers wanting to kind of rush things through instead of, you know, sort of going back to the old way of, you know, laborious testing? A good question. Um, yes, emergency use use authorization, a uh, different regulatory pathway than a typical submission for uh, a medical device. And I, I mean, the reality is, yes, it does have an impact. There, There is kind of a societal imperative that we need to get a certain kind of product or device to the market as soon as possible based on whatever conditions we're talking about, COVID in this case. Um, and does that mean that there is an abbreviated uh, human factors and usability effort associated with those products? Probably. Uh, it did in a lot of cases. And, you know, uh, I think the, the, the regulatory bodies, the agency, I think they acknowledge that. And the, 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 at that point, the benefit outweighs the risk associated yeah. with that particular type of product. So there's a whole lot of, of benefit and risk conversations that, that go on around the human factors effort. Um, and I think in those cases, it's clear that there's an immediate benefit that that the that society needs to see. And uh, I, the way that I believe now, I'm not a regulatory expert. I, it only as it pertains to human factors things, but um, I believe the way those EUAs are structured, the, that there's a there's a timeline associated with that. Right at some point, that yeah. product needs to be revisited, and it needs to have have more effort put into, for example, human factors. I think other things as well. Um. So what are some common blind spots or hurdles that device companies may face when it comes to seeking FDA approval for devices? 
Yeah. So um, there's there's one. I, I mean, as with anything else related to uh, a product development process, there's the push and pull of timelines and deadlines and sacrificing certain things to stay to those timelines. The one thing that um, I, I think does not get factored into development timelines as much as it could uh, for medical devices is the the review of the human factors plan and um, and research protocols by the FDA. Um, it's something that the FDA advises doing, but I think in, in many cases uh, in industry, the timelines associated with those reviews are not conducive to the timelines imposed upon the development teams. Um, it, it can be, uh, it, it, depending on on when you're talking in the past 10 years, anywhere from 90 to 120 days uh, for the, the agency to review uh, one of those research protocols or plans. Um, now that said, it's predictable. And if you're thinking about a, a longer term product development process and you really do have UX and human factors threaded throughout your your culture and your, your development process, um, you, you'll be engaging with your development teams as a, as a human factors practitioner for years, as we said before. And so building in 120 days down the road for that review, if you're thinking that far ahead, which you can be, that, that shouldn't re represent that big of a departure. So right. I, I, I do see, um, I, I guess I should say, I, I, I don't see as many of those reviews as I think would be ideal. I understand why, um, but that, that just allows uh, a, a human factors practitioner, uh, whether it's a, a consultant like myself or whether it's someone working internal to a medical device company, to have the opportunity to lay out that plan. So not just for the validation study, but for an overall program here, here are the activities from a human factors perspective that we plan on doing. Um, here's what we've done so far. Here's what we think makes sense to do in the future. And here's how we plan to structure our, the validation of safe and effective use of this product. And here's our rationale for why we, we think this is the best way and give the FDA an opportunity to disagree with that for whatever reason. Um, that way you, you have alignment before you actually execute that final step uh, such that you can avoid what can happen. Um, and that is you, you go through, you do your best to go through all the right, the right steps to follow the right process to validate safe and effective use at the end. Um, but the FDA takes some issue with the, the manner in which you establish that safe and effective use, whether it's a particular part of your validation study itself, or maybe your definition of user groups. Maybe the FDA comes back and says, this is all well and good, but we think that your, uh, your, your healthcare professional user group is actually a group of surgeons and nurses, and those two have different experiences and different tasks, and you've lumped them into yeah, one. Yeah. How has uh, human factors engineering just sort of progressed over the years? I mean, imagine that, you know, it's take, it's kind of grown by probably 20 years or so, but, you know, how have you seen things, you know, progress over uh, over the time you've been working in it? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I made reference earlier to um, the past, you know, 10, I guess almost 15 years at this point um, being important for the the healthcare and medical device space so i i think um if we rewind rewind back to the beginning of of that period when the uh 
the kind of the, the, the air quotes, new human factors guidance came out from the FDA at that point in time. Um, I think it was much more common than for that validation study to be interpreted as a standalone thing that needed to be done. And since then, I think that this was the movement in the right direction that I kind of referred to earlier. Um, I, I think you have seen that trickle back in, in the in the product development process to now even more and more manufacturers are realizing that it, it gets a whole lot easier to do do well at, at this stage of development if you if you start earlier and you start incorporating feedback from users uh, more often early in the process. So I do think that that there has been movement in that in that direction in the industry, and I think there will continue to be um, as as the practices kind of uh, continue to get socialized and continue to get standardized. It just do it all in a vacuum. That's right. That's right. Well, Corey, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. All right. Very good. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for having me. All right. That wraps up episode ninety-two of PSQH the podcast. Find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Thanks again, and stay safe.